0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham, and this is a weekly place for me to do cultural engagement from the Christian worldview, engaging every square inch of God's world through the lens of God's worldview. Uh, Just coming back from an amazing week in New York, celebrating my wife, who turned 40 on Wednesday. looks nothing like 40, but she did turn 40. Um, it was an incredible time together, much needed to get away. Um, we did a lot of amazing stuff, but most importantly, a very generous member of our congregation blessed us with Hamilton tickets and we were blessed indeed. Uh, Very rare in life do experiences that bear extraordinary expectations then go and exceed those expectations. But this was one of those moments, uh, The hype is real, y'all. Hamilton is incredible. Uh, It literally left me speechless, which my wife says is the greatest proof of Hamilton's greatness. If I'm left speechless, meaning no evaluating, critiquing, sermon illustrations, podcast topic, just brain off, mouth closed for fear of tampering with the glory. If something leaves me like that, then you know it's amazing. And that's what Hamilton did. I'm sure I'll have thoughts at some point, Uh, but for now, uh, no evaluating, just reliving with the soundtrack on repeat. Highly recommend Hamilton. Anyway, on to our topic. Uh, Today is the annual March for Life in D.C., and what makes this year's march particularly compelling is that Donald Trump will be attending, and I think speaking, and he is the first president to do so. I certainly I do want to thank the president for his support. And anytime a sitting president openly advocates for the pro-life cause, uh, that's something to celebrate. However, um, on the other hand, my fear is that his presence is no help to the actual cause, but rather perpetuates one of the biggest obstacles to the cause. The pro-life movement has long suffered from a politicization struggle. It's, it's too enmeshed within our partisan polarization. In fact, one could argue that it has become the dividing line of our fiercely divided country. And this is the fatal flaw of the movement. If we are ever going to make progress and see real change, the cause must be rescued from the vitriol of politics and reimagined as a grassroots public opinion campaign. What I like to say is that the narrative must shift away from making abortion unconstitutional toward making it unthinkable. For too long, the abortion fight has been a legislative fight with overturning Roe versus Wade as the uh, singular focus. Um, I am arguing this strategy has and will fail the cause. It's tempting especially with recent changes to the court's make, uh, makeup. And, and if Trump wins in 2020, then one, uh, I think, is right to assume that we could expect an even more dramatic shift on the court. But let's play this strategy out, and let me show you why I still think it fails. Worst case scenario, uh, the Supreme Court actually does reconsider Roe v. Wade, and it is upheld. Now, even with the changes in the court, I still think this is the most likely scenario. Um, I, I doubt even this court will um, overturn this landmark decision. And if it is upheld, then what? Because overturning Roe v. Wade has been the singular focus of the pro-life agenda for decades now. So what will become of the movement if it fails? That is to say, what becomes of our strategy when our singular strategy is defeated? That's the worst case scenario. Best case scenario. The Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. I I don't think this would prove to be the victory many imagine it to be. Overturning the decision doesn't make abortion illegal in our country. It gives the decision back to the states. So in essence, conservative states will ban it, liberal states will protect it, and women will simply seek abortions in states where it is legal. So for example, Kentucky would likely be a state that would eventually ban abortion. However, I also have no doubt that Illinois to the west and Virginia to the east would protect abortion to the furthest extent. So although abortion would be eliminated in Kentucky, I suspect it would only increase in other areas. And is that the victory for, a life, for life that we all imagine? It's not. And in addition, we will have a new crisis of life on our hands. The ones who will not be able to seek abortions elsewhere will disproportionately be the poor and underprivileged. Uh, Kentucky is nearing a record number of children in foster care, and if abortion were banned, then this problem would become an all-out epidemic. Now, to be very clear, I much prefer that humanitarian crisis to the crisis of death, but it will be a crisis nonetheless. And I believe the pro-life movement under its current strategy is woefully ill-prepared to take up that challenge. So in short, putting all the proverbial eggs in the basket of overturning Roe v. Wade is a deficient strategy and I think we need to reorient around a new way forward. And this is why Donald Trump at the rally isn't helping things. The pro-life movement doesn't need to win legislative battles. It needs to win over opponents. The tide of opinion must change, and if Donald Trump is the face of the movement, then that ain't happening. Pro-life advocates may rejoice at the sight of the president at a pro-life rally, but pro-choice advocates, the very ones we must win over, are seething at that sight, and their opposition is therefore only reinforced. As long as to be pro-life is to be pro-Trump, then pro-life will remain untenable for half our country. And I'm arguing that that dilemma is the dilemma of the pro-life cause. Changing the minds and hearts of progressives is far more important than changing Roe v. Wade. And that just isn't going to happen under the current ethos of our movement. The cause must be rescued from its partisan prison and set free to stand on its own merit as a just and righteous cause no matter one's political persuasion. This is the way I try to approach the issue of life in my own advocacy. I try to disconnect it from partisanship and show how compelling the cause of life is not just from a conservative point of view, but yes, from a progressive perspective. I affirm what is admirable about the progressive movement and then show how the unborn perfectly fit their cause. Let me show you what I mean. Progressives pride themselves as advocates of science, and this is good. They are right to say that we have to listen to what the scientific community is telling us about climate change, for example. But let's apply that to the issue of abortion. The more advanced prenatal science becomes, the more it affirms the humanity of an unborn child. What was once an unseen mystery um, inside the womb that was easy to ignore has become a masterpiece of scientific discovery. We know at the very moment of fertilization, a separate DNA has been created. We know when the heart starts beating. We know when ears can hear and eyes can see. We know when organs develop and muscles are used. We know when thumbs are sucked and dreams begin and yes, pain is felt. And by the way, the Journal of Medical Ethics just published a study earlier this month called Reconsidering Fetal Pain, in which it is argued that unborn babies can actually uh, feel pain as early as 12 weeks, which is dramatically lower than the previous 20 weeks that had been assumed. But these are the, these are the things science is telling us. And the question is whether we will deny the science and hold on to the archaic and outdated clump-of-cells, lump-of-tissue talking points. Add to this the fact that science is increasingly enabling babies to survive premature births, which is going to continue to expand Roe v. Wade's viability standard. So, my progressive friends, we have much to thank you um, for in your advocacy of science my humble request is that you not become science deniers when it comes to the humanity of the unborn. Progressives also pride themselves as being advocates of the helpless. And this is true. I genuinely admire their passion to advocate for those who have no advocates, to, to defend the weak against the powerful, to give voice to the voiceless, and, uh, justice for those suffering injustice, indeed to do exactly what Jesus calls us to do, to care for the least of these. More than anything else, this is what my more progressive friends have helped me see as a glaring deficiency in my own faith. Um, Conservative evangelicals have a notorious blind spot in our disproportionate emphasis on orthodoxy, which is right thinking, at the expense of orthopraxy, which is right actions. Now, we can debate the best way to care for the helpless, but I'm willing to concede that progressives absolutely do care for those conservatives often neglect. Having said that, I struggle to understand why progressives do not view the unborn as fitting their passion for justice. What group is more vulnerable, voiceless, and victims of violence than the unborn? So progressive friends, you are leading the way in your advocacy for the helpless. My humble request is that you see the unborn as a demographic in desperate need of your advocacy. Progressives also pride themselves as advocates of cultural diversity. They rightfully point out the, I guess you could say, domineering tendency of white Western culture to look down upon other cultures as inferior or even imperialistically impose our culture upon others. You have helped us to see that we need to humbly listen and learn from a diversity of perspectives rather than simply assuming our way is the only way. Diversity is the key to dismantling the echo chamber tendency within us all. The problem, however, is I'm not sure many progressives want to hear non-Western opinions on abortion because quite frankly, other cultures view our practices as barbaric. Even by western standards, America is very radical when it comes to abortion policies and practices. Um some of our states in this country rival China and North Korea policies. When you step outside western culture, abortion is viewed very differently. A compelling example of this took place at a United Nations panel discussion on the topic of maternity health in Africa. A European woman was ironically caught lamenting colonization while attempting to colonize her maternal beliefs and practices upon African females. This was her odd argument, Um, that in order to avoid colonization, you have to allow cultures to be free to make their own choices. Okay, I get that. Therefore, women in Africa must be free to make their own choices with their own bodies. But that is how Europeans view abortion, not Africans. If you want to allow Africans to be free to make their own choices, then you have to allow them to view abortion the way they view abortion, which isn't the way we view it in the West. So let me read to you the powerful response from the African delegate who is at that meeting. I'm just going to read the transcript because it's it's, it's amazing. This is what she says. I must say this to you, to the European lady about abortion. I must say this to you. I'm from a tribe in Nigeria, and if I tried to translate in my um, native tongue what it means for a woman to choose what to do with her own body, I couldn't. Most of the African native languages don't even have a way of phrasing abortion to mean anything good. Where it becomes colonization is when people from the Western world come to Africa and try to give us this kind of language that we could never translate into our native tongue. They tell us that it can actually mean a woman doing something with her own body that isn't morally bad, but culturally, most African communities believe by their tradition, by their cultural standards, that abortion is a direct attack on human life. So for anyone to convince African women that abortion is good, you first of all have to tell her that her parents and her grandparents and all her ancestors were actually wrong. You're going to have to tell her that they have always been wrong in their thinking. And that, madame, she she actually said madame, and that, madame, is colonization. Do you see? How willing are we to listen to a diversity of cultures? Because abortion advocacy is one of the least diverse opinions on the planet, relegated to Western cultures or population control regimes. So, again, progressive friends, thank you for your advocacy for cultural diversity. My humble request is that you listen and learn from the views of other cultures on the topic of abortion as well. Progressives also pride themselves as advocates of public opinion over special interest power. For example, polling consistently shows the majority of Americans do favor at least some form of stricter gun laws. So why does that public opinion not translate into legislation? Progressives respond, The NRA. Polling has consistently showed that the majority of Americans believe prescription medication costs are completely out of control. So why do prices continue to increase? Progressives respond, Big Pharma. And on and on I could go with these examples. Now listen, I am really not trying to make any statements about any of these issues and certainly don't want to derail this conversation by adding controversy to an already deep, controversial, deeply controversial topic. But with these examples, I believe I am representing what progressives see as a deep flaw in the system. Special interest money reigns over public opinion. But let us then consider public opinion on the topic of abortion. Recent polling is showing a major shift in public opinion toward pro-life positions. For example, consider the last Harvard-CAPS-Harris poll. Um, here, Here are some conclusions on the topic of abortion. A majority of Americans, 54%, believe Roe v. Wade should be modified or overturned. A great majority of Americans, 70%, believe abortion should only be allowed in the case of rape or incest or during the first trimester. Only a tiny minority, 6%, believe abortion should be allowed up until the birth of the child. So how is it possible that a position with such little public support could be so legislatively protected? How is it possible that a bill that only represents 6% of American support, that abortion should be allowed all the way up to the point of childbirth, how is it possible that that bill could be passed with a standing ovation in the state of New York? How is it possible that that same 6% position must be held by 100% of DNC presidential candidates in order to be considered a viable candidate for the primary. In fact, why is it nearly impossible at all to successfully run as a pro-life Democrat candidate in any race? You know the answer. The DNC is owned by the special interest money of abortion lobby as much as they claim the GOP is owned by their own special interest groups. So, progressive friends, thank you for standing up to special interest money and lobbies on behalf of the American people. My humble plea is that you do so on this issue as well. Our population does not agree with the radical abortion position of the Democratic Party please stand up to Planned Parenthood and abortion lobby, which massively profit off of the abortion industry in America and choose instead to represent the public opinion. Do you see what I mean in all of this? Advocates of science, advocates for the vulnerable and helpless, advocates of cultural diversity, advocates for popular opinion over special interest money. The unborn perfectly fit the progressive cause. And if conservatives would quit making it such a loaded, partisan issue, maybe it would create room for progressives to see it as such. Now, one more thing to note. When I speak, whenever I speak or write on, a, on the issue of abortion, it is never fear of controversy that gives me pause. Uh, I'm used to controversy. <laughs> Instead, I, am, I, I, I hesitate to speak because I'm burdened by the countless people bearing the personal pain, guilt, and shame of abortion. And I know that discussing the topic, perhaps even mentioning the word abortion, has a way of reopening past wounds. This is an underappreciated dynamic to the public debate, particularly when it comes to the cavalier and callousness with which the debate rages. I cringe at the way our culture disputes this sensitive topic as I imagine, silent sufferers personalizing all of this incivility. So never, I never talk about abortion without a word to those who have had abortion, um, a word to um, men who have um, encouraged um, an abortion of an unwanted pregnancy, any of those involved with this painful decision. I'll say two things to you. First. God's ability to forgive is much greater than your ability to sin. With grace deeper than your deepest shame and wider than our farthest wanderings, the gospel of Jesus Christ can handle anything any of us have ever done. And yes, that includes an abortion. If not, I'm in as much trouble as you because I, like you, have past regrets that haunt me to this day. But God's grace is so amazing that not only are these forgiven, they are forgotten. That is to say, God chooses not to remember the failures we cannot forget. To Him, they are gone. So may they be gone to you as well. Secondly, once you accept that your abortion is forgiven and forgotten, we need your voice more than any other. Male voices like mine are easily dismissed. Female voices who have never struggled with an unwanted pregnancy also hold little weight. But it is impossible to ignore the prophetic stories of those who have gone through the trauma, pain, and shame of an abortion and are willing to speak. Now, I don't want to bind your conscience as though you must share, but I do want to dispel the lie that your regrets are telling you you are not disqualified from this discussion. You are actually uniquely qualified if you so choose to bless this cause with your story. So not only is your story forgiven, your story can be redeemed as you yourself become an advocate against what you regret doing. Okay, thanks to all for listening. Um, Anytime you talk abortion, I recognize um, how controversial it is and it always brings a lot of feedback. I'm okay with that. If you want to engage publicly, you can reach out to me on Twitter at tcpcrobert, at tcpcrobert. Or if you want to do so privately, you can send an email to assistant at tcpca.org. Uh, Don't forget to share the podcast with others, rate us on iTunes, and even better, leave us a review. That is definitely the best way to support this podcast, and we will see you back next week for another episode of Every Square Itch.